Women Khan, Case 5, Xiangyan, Up a Tree. The case. The priest Xiangyan said, It is as though you were up a tree, hanging from a branch with your teeth. Your hands and feet can't touch any branch. Someone appears beneath the tree and asks, What is the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the west? If you do not answer, you evade your responsibility. If you do answer, you lose your life. What will you do? Women's comment. Even if your eloquence flows like a river, it is all in vain. Even if you can expound cogently on the whole body of Buddhist literature, that too is useless. If you can respond to this dilemma properly, you give life to those who have been dead and kill those who have been alive. If you can't respond, you must wait and ask Maitreya about it. Women's verse. Xiang Yin is just blabbing nonsense. His poisonous intentions are limitless. He stops up the monk's mouths, making his whole body a demon eye. <laughs> Please sit comfortably. Xiang Yan, who lived in the 9th century, studied with Bai Zhang, whose, whose great koan about the denial of karmic causality leading to 500 lives as a fox appears just before this one in Women Quan in the Women's Collection. When Bai Zhang died, um, Xiang Yan went on to study with Guishan. But even though he was a gifted scholar and intellectual, perhaps uh, he was a, um, a gifted person in many ways, he failed to grasp the point of Zen. When Guishan challenged him with the question, What is your own being before your parents were born? He couldn't respond. In desperation, after a time of struggle, he burned all his notes and decided to live as an ordinary monk and face Guishan's question directly without his books. So he became the caretaker of, of a neglected tomb of an old master. And one day, when he was sweeping the paths, 
His broom sent a pebble flying until it hit the stalk of a bamboo. Tock! With that sound, he had an awakening. He went to Guishan and cried out, You have been even more kind than my own parents. If you had explained it to me, I would never have known this joy. And he wrote a poem. One tock has made me forget all my previous knowledge. No more pretense of practice. Far and wide, not a trace is left. The great purpose lies beyond sound and form. In every direction, the realised way. Beyond all speech, the ultimate principle. So just, it's kind of interesting that he did it. It happened to him while he was doing some, samu, you know, caretaking. Yeah, it's, it's a... Um, a secret in Zen that you're just as likely to awaken in caretaking as you are on your cushions. Uh, it can happen like this when we're ripe to fall, as it were. Just sweeping the path, flicking up a pebble, a pebble Tok Xiangyan died the great death in that moment. <sighs> this background gives a, a, some sense of where Xiangyan was coming from in creating this strange koan with its cartoon-like image of ourselves. It's you, it's me, flailing helplessly up a tree, hanging by our teeth. I want to say some things by way of appreciation of this koan before coming to the, the crunch, the real point. I mean, we all love cartoons, and in New Zealand and Australia, we especially love Michael Lunig's work. And and um, Bridget sometimes sends me a favourite of hers, and it's a special delight, a kind of secret communication, to receive a cartoon about something so very inward. Uh, and Lunig often also uses black humour which is kind of down-under specialty in Australia, for Australia and New Zealand, but also for the Chinese, it seems. Yeah, Ross has commented on this before, and uh, I start seeing it everywhere now. Uh, Lunig would often um, expose our human predicament in some way with an image, quite zany and um, unexpected. And this is what Xiangyan is doing too. Um, but this is Buddhist black humour. <laughs> Actually, I remember a little incident. Uh, 
with Ross, we were walking, I can't remember if this was in Australia or New Zealand, but we came across a dead animal. It was just bones and skin in the ground. And I made this sort of joke, it wasn't a very good one, I said, my goodness, you don't look at all well, vicar. <laughs> <laughs> and Ross improved it heaps by saying, not so good today, digger. <laughs> bringing it home to Australia and <laughs> our history and, and going to war together and all that yeah so, um, what did the Buddha say is the source of suffering you think about the four noble truths it was self clinging holding on desperately to our separate self brings us suffering. As the person up the tree holding on by the skin of our teeth, and by the way, that's another bit of black humour because our teeth haven't got any skin. So that's a bit of humour that's built into the language. Um, um, the situation we're in up this tree is completely absurd, isn't it? It's like a cartoon, as I say. It's also like theatre of the absurd. Um, the most well-known example of the theatre of the absurd is a play from 1948, it's quite old, by Samuel Beckett, Waiting for Godot. And I've seen it lots of times, I love it. I see it as a Zen play, although... Yeah, no, no, that is intention, actually. In that play, the characters are these kind of tramps um, waiting on a street corner, arguing, bickering, being quite affectionate to each other, spouting poetry, uh, going on about nothing much. And the absurdity is that they're wasting their lives waiting for Godot, who never seems to come. What is God? Is it God? Going to come and explain the purpose of our lives and make sense of all this? Twice during the play, a boy appears and says, Godo is coming tomorrow. You know, that reminds me of a pub, a pub that I showed Mary on a hilltop in New Zealand. And the pub used to have a sign up on the top saying, Free beer tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Godot is going to come tomorrow. And waiting for Godot, these people are missing the value of their lives in the moment. Uh, and that's, that's the real absurdity. Uh, Godot was present all along, in a sense, but they missed it. Waiting for Godot to appear and fix everything. It's like women's comment. If you can't respond, wait and ask Maitreya. Maitreya is coming tomorrow, or at least at the end of the Kalpa. <laughs> to sort it out for you. Yeah. Hmm. So coming to the dilemma that Xiangyan has set up. 
continuing to hang by our teeth. And it's quite a poor future, don't you think? I mean, it's, we're not going to be able to keep it up. It's not sustainable. Then, then someone comes beneath, the, beneath our tree and asks, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? And Xiangyan says, if you don't respond, you evade your responsibility. What's that? Our responsibility. Hmm. You know, not very many koans mention um, explicitly like this, well, fairly explicitly, the Bodhisattva vow, or the whole ethical side of Zen, or, or the, the uh, duty of compassion. And I was once grumpling, grumping and grizzling during our training with Ross. I was grumping and grizzling to marry, as I did about a lot of things. <laughs> um, uh, about how the Koans don't mention compassion. And Mary said to me, and I'm still grateful for your reply, she said, They all do, Arthur! <laughs> Arthur! <laughs> Spot on. <laughs> yeah, all Koans were created to assist someone's awakening. So they enact compassion. And this one's no different. Xiang Yan's great compassion is to place us in an impossible dilemma. You must answer the inquirer because you've taken the vow to save all beings before you enter your eternal peace. That's the Bodhisattva vow, to stay in the world trying to end suffering until the last blade of grass is saved. And only then to enter nirvana. So you must answer. But when you do answer, he says, you die. Because you have to let go of your grip on the branch with your teeth. You'll die. What's that about? Well, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Hmm. We could try to answer. Sounds a bit preachy to teach us how to die to self. But this whole koan is a vivid depiction of the reason Bodhidharma came from the West. It's a, a cartoon of the whole deal. It shows no way forward, no way back. All eloquence and book learning, useless. And that death grip of our teeth on that tree as we try to hold on to what? An idea of ourselves? 
It feels more primal than that. Really primal stuff, our very survival. This kind of Freudian oral, you know, first grip on life is oral. It's interesting that he would present our condition in this way. He's trying to bite onto, onto uh, uh, to save ourselves, to survive at all costs. And it's a brilliantly absurdist image of our almost constantly constant and pervasive anxiety as human beings, our fundamental anxiety. An image of how we helplessly flail about with our hands unable to grasp anything, nothing to hold on to, to relieve our anxiety. Our feet unable to find a solid support. Just how it feels to be anxious. So what will we do? We're going to have to let go. Sometime. Could delay the matter. Hmm. But when we do let go, we'll die. What is this death that Xiangyan is talking about in this little parable, if you like? Cartoon-like parable. His parable is clearly about our suffering, the cause of our suffering, clinging, the necessity to let go. That in the Four Noble Truths is the third noble truth. Cessation of suffering as a result of letting go, of stopping clinging. Uh, this is deeply grounded in the Dharma, this story. Um, and uh, that need to let go being in the Mahayana frame for our own sake and for the sake of all beings. And the koan is about something else here. When we let go, we die. My own first teacher um, in... Um, up, upstate New York in the forest was John Dido Lurie. Um, I worked with him for seven years. And he used to come into the, the dojo sometimes and this great, he's a big man, been a sailor with tattoos and so on, um, in the Navy, and he had a huge bass voice and he used to say, I can't imitate it, I've got a weak voice, he'd say, Die on your cushions! <clears throat> And then he'd say, if you die once, you'll never have to die again. <laughs> what was he talking about? Well, in Zen, as I've mentioned already, this is called the great death. It's the death of separate ego that struggles so desperately to maintain its grip. So this Cohen's Dharma black humour, 
don't miss the humour, the kind of humour we understand down under, and the Chinese too. When I read through Aitken Roshi's um, take on this, Cohen, I didn't, he didn't seem to find it funny in the least. What? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so maybe the Americans don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's obviously no time to explain the Dharma to the person at the bottom of the tree. You probably get a, a, barely a noise out of your mouth before you hit the ground. Ah! Or oh, something like that. <laughs> No great and subtle exposition of the Buddha's teachings here. Mm. But the situation itself reveals the Buddha's teaching. Suffering, clinging, letting go, dying the great death. To save all beings. See, so yeah, there's a kind of a sketch of the Four Noble Truths with a Mahayana twist. If we did have to say something as we were falling, and most students have a go at this, um, I think I probably said something like, um, I'm going to read what I've written here. Um, Bodhidharma came to, to, to teach the great death for the sake of all being splat. No, no, really fast. Bodhidharma came to sit. The great death for the, Looks like all beings. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Robert Aitken was once asked how he, he'd sum up the Dharma. And I treasure his deceptively simple reply, the dry, spare humour of it. I mean, he did have wonderful sensory humour. He said, Nothing lasts, and we're in it together. That's seven words. Pretty good. I don't know if you'd get them out before you hit the ground, but <laughs> nothing lasts is the great staring fact to which the Buddha drew attention. We're in it together is the saving power of love, of compassion, of connectedness that relieves our dread of personal impermanence. And it's also a statement that sums up the whole um, interconnectedness of things in the universe. We're in it together. It's that kind of universe. Uh, you know, technically um, dependent co-arising. A perfect statement of why Bodhidharma came from the West is there in Aitken's words. But no time to say even that much. So can action speak louder than words? What will your action be that speaks louder than words? What actions do we have time for in this free fall that is our life? 
You know, in a sense, we're all in free fall, falling through time, the onrush of time. Um, I don't mean to say that this image of free fall is implicit in this koan. I'm adding something here, perhaps a metaphor drawn more from the fact that we now know what it's like to skydive and maybe base jump or wingsuit jump, whatever. In a sense, we're all in free fall. When, but when, when we link up and meet, meet one another, we're a bit like those formations that the skydivers reach out and make with each other, holding hands in the sky. Um, except we have no parachutes in reality our our death is a final matter well maybe you disagree maybe you have got a parachute of belief of some kind. I can only say good luck with that. (laughs) I think our death is real. But so is the great death, the great death of Zen. Our amazing capacity to realise that we are the vastness. The vastness is us. We always were the vastness. It always was us. We free fall into joyful connection with the world. In fact, more than connection, identity. And if we accept our lives as a kind of free fall, uh, then everyone we meet is precious. Everything we encounter is like um, uh, um, each particle of matter, each moment is no other than the Tathagata's inexpressible radiance. You know, there's another another great koan which, in which acceptance of free fall seems to be suggested. That's number 46 in Wurman's collection. <clears throat> and here's the verse that's quoted in the koan. You who sit on top of a hundred-foot pole... Although you have entered the way, it is not yet genuine. Take a step from the top of the pole, and worlds of the ten directions are your total body. Hmm. That vastness is you. And this too is a koan about stopping clinging. In this case, a bit different. Stopping clinging to an enlightenment experience at the top of the pole, as it were. But the outcome 
how to discover your own vast nature is the same. Let go. Take that step off the pole. The same as in Xiangyan's koan about the person up the tree clinging in such a completely primal way. We can't always hold on to that sense of self. And yet to let go feels like a huge unthinkable risk. Can we take it for the for the sake of all beings, for the sake of ourselves, for the sake of ultimate release from our clinging, which is so absurd, ridiculous. I use this con in that way when I catch myself clinging. Ridiculous. It's like the man up the tree. No future in it. Mm. But still, Xiang Yan's question, how will you respond? What will you do? And will it reveal the meaning of Bodhidharma's coming from the West? <laughs>